Hey y'all, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. I'm the show's host and producer, Mike Joseph. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the show, I kindly ask that you smash the subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please don't hesitate to rate, comment, and recommend. If you have someone in your life that could get something out of the conversations we're having here, tell them about the show. Also, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph, that is T I S Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out if you know someone who might be interested in being interviewed on the show or if you have any other ideas or constructive criticism. Most importantly, I thank you very much for listening. Stay well. Chris Gethard is a comedian, an actor, the writer of several books, Lose Well is a particular favorite of mine, and the host of the podcast Beautiful Anonymous, in which he takes a random phone call from a complete stranger and converses with them for an hour. Chris is probably best known for Career Suicide, a one-man show that later became an acclaimed HBO special in which he went deep on his struggles with depression. My conversation with Chris covers a lot of ground. We talk about his recently released documentary, Half My Life, in which he tries to figure out a balance between his life as a comedian and his life as a suburban dad. We talk about hitting your 40s and realizing you're not as cool as you may have once been. This is, of course, subjective. Uh, We talk about bullying, which was a prominent part of his and my upbringing and still rears its head from time to time. We discuss the difference between toxic violence and self-defense, and we talk about the heaviness that comes with being a public figure who talks openly about mental health challenges and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I am really happy to bring you my conversation with the amazing Chris Gethard. My name is Chris Gethard. I'm a comedian and kind of just a weirdo. I've lived a weird life. I used to host a TV show and I host a podcast now where I just take phone calls and that's not really a comedy project, but that's somehow my main gig. And I've written a few books and do a lot of stand up, and I just sort of bounce around paying the mortgage, being creative. Mostly at this point though, I'm a, I'm a guy who's like pretty happy to be living in the suburbs, hanging out with my two-year-old son. That's sort of where my head's been at lately. So I think that sums me up. Those are good bullet points. So you self-identify as a weirdo, which I feel like we're kids of the eighties and back in the day, it wasn't cool to be a weirdo and now it is. Yeah, it's, I like that you say that because that is a word that I'll sometimes toss around and and it doesn't have the stigma that it used to, but certainly growing up, it did. I do remember distinctly when the other children, it's around fourth, fifth grade, people started to look at me a little cockeyed, like (laughs) sort of doing things differently. And it was not pleasant. It was not pleasant always. And... It was not celebrated, and I'm very, very happy to see that that has changed. It gives me a lot of hope, actually, to see how much that's changed. And what what did you take out of that experience? Like being every, I assume this was my experience. Every kid wants to fit in, and when you don't fit in for whatever reason, whether it's because you wear glasses or you dress differently or you speak differently or whatever it is, like what do you do? You feel like you get it? You got any benefits from that? as opposed to the jock or the, you know. The preppies and the. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I had my older brother, he was three grades ahead of me in school. And I got to say, I didn't really have a chance 
at being a regular kid. Coming up after him, he was like the kid who had bifocals in third grade. He had the eye patch, the braces. So he was that guy, you know, and I had the glasses coming up after him. Our last name, it's pronounced Gethard, but it spells out the words get hard. Like you don't really have much of a chance, you know, and then we grew up in a town that was very, it's a really fascinating place. The older I get, the the more I realize how interesting it was. By the standards of today, I grew up in a way that was extremely diverse, let alone by the standards of the 80s. It's kind of miraculous. So there's also, you know, so many beautiful things that came with that. Also, the constant feeling that every there was a lot of class divide and a lot of people trying to figure out their place. And my brother even recently said to me something I never thought about, which was that we lived in a part of town that was not so good, but we took to a school in a better part of town. And I was joking with my brother about how we got lucky on that. He goes, not really, man. Cause I went to the trashy school before that, like the, the, you know, before our family moved, he's like, and I got picked on a lot less cause everybody there was as poor as we were and then all of a sudden now I had the bifocals and the braces and was the kid whose family had the least me so it was like just a lot just a lot you know so I didn't really have much of a chance so the drawbacks I think you can hear in my stammering recounting of that that it's a confusing thing as a kid and led to judgment led to fights People are sometimes surprised to hear that I was in a number of physical fights growing up. Like you wouldn't expect that for somebody who looks like me, but it's kind of a fact of life in the eighties growing up when and where I did feel a lot of anger, a lot of things to unwrap. Really. I think a lot about how much my guard was up and how much of my adulthood has been about unwrapping that figuring out how to let my guard down. At the same time you asked about positives too. I think there's a certain level of self-sufficiency I have. I think that there's a certain level of me being able to cut to the quick with conversations and cut to the quick with a sense of, do I like people? Do I trust people? I think I have a pretty good detector for people's integrity. And then professionally, I think that after unwrapping all the negatives, one thing that has served me kind of well growing up the way I did is I've never, I've never settled for the status quo in terms of how you're allowed to do things. And I really thank God for that. And so much of that is because my brother and his friends, when they got together, what they bonded over was music and they were very big fans of independent music, specifically punk music. So I was exposed at a very, very young age to, you know, shows where the bands playing the kids in it were 17 years old. And the person who rented the hall for the show to happen was 16 and they needed a fire marshal. So the 15 year old friend got certified as a fire marshal and then they're selling their own t-shirts and their own tapes and records and stuff. So what my brother did to survive and what my brother did to kind of try to find his clan was he found music and he found a specific area of music that was very, very devoted to just kind of making things happen and, and the whole do it yourself attitude. So that has served me well because being an outsider taught me that. And then in 
the comedy industry where rejection is just a fact of life and where I think there are, I have many opinions about, there's a lot of fakers and there's also a lot of professional gatekeepers whose job depends on maintaining that their opinion is worthwhile and I don't always know that it is. Sure. You get told a lot, you get told no a lot is my point and you're asked to conform a lot is my point and I think growing up the way I did, despite all the hard aspects, made me always kind of call bullshit on that part of my French, just a little bit of like, I know there's got to be another way. There's got to be a way for me to go get this done the way I want to get it done. So that was a positive. I appreciate that level of perspective. I, I find some commonality in that, actually. And uh, two things, two follow-up questions I, 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 I'm thinking of as a result of that. One and you mentioned actually both of these things in Lose Well. Growing up as part of a scene or like adjacent to part of a scene, or even if it's like through your brother, part of a scene, is something that I never experienced. I mean, I love music, but grew up listening to Top 40 and hip hop. And my day job is in the music business. And I've learned a lot more about what like the punk scene and, and the indie scene is like. Did that provide, I obviously provided a sense of belonging, but was it cool to like find a place where you belonged and not only that, but a place where you belonged that wasn't, that wasn't super like bro-ish or damaging or, 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 you know, was open-minded and, you know, like my best friend's a punk and hardcore kid. Most of those folks are like vegan or vegetarian and they're straight edge. It's not what you would expect if, you know, you get a group of, of, of kids together. Well, it was insanely empowering in so many ways. Like I said, the motivation, the, the way that I was seeing people who were not far away from me age-wise and experience-wise just dive into things and make things happen. You know, like you go to a show where, like I said, all the infrastructure was put in place by other kids. And then actually one of the first creative things I ever did in my life, I wound up publishing a fanzine with a friend of mine, just like a homemade magazine. You'd have that, you'd have kids running the record labels, kids distributing things. And that side of it was really beautiful. I will say that I think as the punk scene has grown up and I think the modern version of it is a, a truly beautiful thing that feels a lot safer and I'm envious of it in a way. I'll say that there were violent elements and bro elements when I was a kid. So sometimes you'd walk into a show and you'd be like, oh man, there's like seven dudes here and they all got the same color hoodie on. Oh, it's that Bergen County youth crew. Like that was a group, the Bergen County youth crew, which is like, these are just jocks who discovered hardcore and they realized they can beat up kids like me by coming to these shows and claiming that it's slam dancing, you know, like, and you ask a lot of people who were going to shows in the nineties and they'll also tell you too, like you might have a bunch of people with shaved heads show up and you look at them and you go, uh Oh, like these might be the types of skinheads that are like, we support the working class or these might be the types of skinheads that go, we are skinheads like Nazis, like, right. and, and that was a thing. And so there were scary elements and, you know, there's a group called anti-racist action. They used to distribute flyers that shows, okay, if you see this type of patch at this group, if they have this color, if they have on Doc Martens with this color shoelace, this might, this might be someone to be concerned about, like these weird coded things. So that felt very mysterious and intimidating and scary, but what would happen is you'd find out how to avoid those elements. You'd find the other people who wanted to chase those elements away and who were not okay with them being around. And more and more you'd realize, okay, like I'm finding the like-minded people. And 
I also have stories of specific incidents where people went out of their way, not just to look out for me, but look out for me in a way that I can think of some of the very earliest times in my life where I, I realized other people maybe had an internal dialogue or internal monologue rather that was as fucked up as mine. Sure. That showed itself in the punk scene specifically. I remember once going to a show and it was this band H2O who was at the time really popular in New York and still busted out and went to their show. They were playing in North Jersey somewhere. And I was, I was just like going through stretch. I've had some major depressive stretches in my life. And part of why I'm an outsider was like, I've got this zone in my brain that I know is not normal and is not healthy. And people are going to think I'm a fucking weirdo if, if they realize like how out of control my thoughts get. And I was standing in the back of the room in between bands and the lead singer of H2O saw me and walked up to me from across the room and was kind of like, he, he, we were near some video games that weren't turned on and he used that as an excuse. I never forgot that this guy, Toby, he's just like, oh, man, they don't have the games on. I was in the mood to play. I was like, I'm doing all right. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm okay. He's like, yeah, cause I uh, tell you, man, sometimes I get in my head too. I get pissed off about stuff too. And he was older and I just remember going, I feel like no one sees this. I feel like they're, I'm putting out cries for help and no one's getting them. I feel like when people do see it, they tell me to stop being a baby or they make fun of me or, you know, I'm viewed as weak. It feels like a vulnerability. Meanwhile, I got this guy who's from this like surging in popularity band. He doesn't owe me a thing. He's the rock star in the room. So few a few incidents like that that I can think of where I go, man, I feel understood. I feel understood via some of the lyrics of this music, via some of the ethics of this scene, via the actions of some of these people on a one-on-one -on -one level. So really transformative, really lucky I found it. And I think it kind of like shaped my approach to life. So actually, I'm going to backtrack slightly. So when I first found out about you, it was because some buddies were like, oh man, Mike, like you should check this comedian out because he talks about some of the shit that you go through. And I was just kind of coming into being able to publicly speak about the experiences with depression and anxiety that I've had over the course of my life. Do you ever wonder sometimes, do you feel like you get like typecast or stigmatized or labeled as like, oh, this is Chris Gethard, the guy who talks about depression. You're like, fuck, I wish I didn't do that. Yes, all the time. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's the short answer. The more elaborate answer is like, I'm very, very proud that I put some creative work out there. I did an HBO special all about that stuff. It was a bunch of funny stories, but wrapped up in the narrative of like, here's, here's some dark shit. And I'm not, a shame that I talked about it. I'm glad I did. It, it, it felt like, a th you know, my special came out in 2017. And even in those four years since, it feels like it would not, when it came out, people were pretty shocked by it. And I don't think it would be as shocking today. And that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. And I'm not claiming I had much to do with that, but I stepped up and tried to do my part. But the idea that that conversation is not shocking anymore is great. It's great. And I, I, I will tell you without exaggeration that um pretty much every day still i will get messages from people thanking me for making it and and 
quite often they'll be dark and they'll be specific and they'll be from people in pain or people who have lost someone. And, you know, when I go on the road and do comedy, people sometimes come up to me after shows, they'll tell me really dark stuff. And I'm so proud that I did something that makes them feel less alone because I know that loneliness. At the same time, there are certainly some days where I go, man, I don't necessarily want to be alone. You know, someone in Bloomington, Indiana just told me some really, really sad stuff. And I'm flattered that that they trusted me with it. I'm flattered I helped, but now I'm also sitting alone in a hotel room in Bloomington, Indiana, thinking about it. And, you know, as someone who has other things to say, or maybe doesn't even have other things to say necessarily, but just like makes creative work that isn't aiming to be shocking or to have some cultural relevance. Like sometimes I just write jokes. Right. And it's tough to feel like they're held to the standard of that or that. I am viewed as only the depression guy because it's a tough label. It makes me sit in it. It's also like, it's one piece of who I am. I'd like to show off the other pieces of who I am. And, you know, I'd like to think that by the standards of my peers and people who have been doing it the same length of time, I am I'm pretty good at what I do. And, Sometimes it does feel like an uphill climb to sort of match that or come up from under it. And it's worrying. It can be stressful. Thinking maybe maybe I gave away a little bit too much of myself by putting that out there. But then you sit there, you go, well, the real red flag for me is I go, oh, those are all self-protective thoughts. Those are about my comfort. Those are about my career. And I always try to remind myself that being an artist that when you are at your best in my opinion it is not about you it is about what the audience gets so they're getting something and thanking you for it and that's beautiful end of story all the insecurities are about me so that comes from ego that's never served me well take a deep breath but yeah the short answer is yeah it freaks me out I would have to imagine it It does. I, and I, I think even I've sometimes felt compelled to be like, if I ever get to talk to Chris, I'm going to tell him like this, this and that. And, and I, I, speaking to a lot of people that sort of work within that realm, it, there's got to be like this heaviness that comes when someone says that something you said or something you wrote changed their life in like, in a way that was that impactful. How do you carry that? Like therapists have therapists, but you're not a therapist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, I'll say this, like more than anything, it's beautiful because I think about being 13 years old and feeling like something was really wrong. I remember feeling completely unable to talk to my parents about it. I remember trying to talk to friends about it in college and seeing them get totally uncomfortable and, and not knowing how to help. And I'm not mad at them about it. They were kids too. I look back, we're all in our early twenties. You know, we thought we were grown ups. We were getting there, but we weren't fully grown up yet. So I remember that loneliness. I remember it. I remember that fear. So Overall, I go, that's beautiful that people feel less alone because I know the exact type of, when they come up to me and they go, you said this thing and it hit with me 
and it made me go see a doctor for the first time or people go, I, I sat down and showed my dad your special. And all of a sudden we were able to have this conversation that I tried to have four times. I go, oh, that's beautiful. Cause I remember that loneliness. I remember that loneliness. So that is the core reaction is like, what a beautiful thing, right? Like it is heavy. It does weigh on me. It does scare me sometimes that I'll be viewed as only that. I sit there, I go, man, like I think about, for me, a lot of it was music. I think I go, okay, I think about the music and the songs that got me through the night sometimes, got me through the days. God, I made a thing that is that to some people, that's pretty cool. And if it sticks with me, I'm the one who put it out there and ultimately it's flattering. Sometimes there's other people in the comedy scene who have taken some pot shots at me, you know, who say it's not real comedy, kind of maybe imply that I'm like a faker and 90% of the time I'm able to swat that aside because I've paid my dues, you know, I've been doing this for 21 years. Right. Then the other 10% of the time when it's my peers, I go, oh, that this does sting a little bit. This does hurt a little bit. But then I also take a step back and I go down to the person, everyone who's ever expressed that is someone who I would probably classify as somewhat of a bully anyway, stylistically. So I try not, you know, a lot of my life was about not letting the bullies win. So I go, they can say what they want about my fake comedy, but I've been doing this for 21 years. And I have to understand that these punches are being thrown in the same way that someone might've made fun of the size of my forehead or made fun of my last name. It's the same mentality. So yeah, there's a lot of psychology wrapped up into airing out your psychology, right? It's, yeah. it's weird. And it's going to sure. be a thing for my whole life. And I've come to have to accept that it will be, it will be, it's the highest I ever set the bar. And it's the thing I'm most proud of. It will also be the thing that people compare everything else I ever do to. Sure. So that's, that's what it is. It's funny. You mentioned people talking shit about you uh, because of your material. And the first question that popped in my head is like, if you, next time you see those people, do you get there to like punch you in the face? It's funny. There's, there's a few, there's, there's really only, first of all, I'm sure there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions, but you know what? There's a little bit of a code amongst creative people, which is like, you can't you want beyond closed doors. If it's like you're sitting around at the table with other creative people and you got opinions on something, air it out. That's part of the process of maybe figuring out how you're the counterpoint to something you don't like, or sniffing out something that you feel as inauthentic as a way to strengthen up your own resolve towards authenticity. That stuff, sure. And I'm sure there's many hundreds of people who have had things to say to me amongst their peers. There's only three or four incidents I can think of where someone publicly slammed me, but that's, that's still more than, you know, there's that whole comedian's code. You don't talk about other people. One of the people was a friend of mine. We had a falling out. So I go, that sucks. That's a bummer. I can deal with that though. That's a person who, when I catch up with him, hopefully we can settle it face to face and realize that we've both pissed each other off. Two of these other people are people who I literally have never met in real life to this day. There's two people I can think of who have pretty big platforms who have used them to make fun of me. I sit there and I go, it is hard for me to completely understand why this is worth your time and effort. It is, 
especially in a culture that I think swears up and down by the, I think in comedy, a lot of people like to say comedy is rough edge and you can say whatever you want. And if you can sell tickets, go out and do it. And it's for truth tellers and you have to be able to take risks. And some of the people I think who prescribe to that theory the most are some of the, are, are, I think that the people who have come at me the most are from that corner of the world of like, if we say fucked up offensive shit in the spirit of trying to say something with a joke, say, I go, okay, but you've also slammed me. And all I'm doing is exactly what you said. It's just that what I'm saying is not offensive in the same ways yours are. It's, it's just emo. Right. So if you're allowed to go sell as many tickets as you want, saying things that like socially are pissing people off and your defense is free speech, how come you're mad at me for saying I'm sad publicly? Because if I can sell tickets and have an audience and have a career, that's the same thing. So it's not about free speech. It's about you don't like what I say. So in some sense that either is threatening or it gives you some sense of credibility to undercut me or throw me under the bus. But either way, there's hypocrisy there. And it's, it's, it took me a long time because I'm not going to claim that it doesn't hurt to have people from your own field kind of publicly, you know, crush you. But when I was able to break it down to the mechanic parts by that and go, Oh, okay. There's real hypocrisy in the fact that I'm not being given it's my style and my choices that are removing me from being given the same sort of leeway that, that you constantly ask for in your own work. That's hypocrisy. And now that I see hypocrisy, again, the punk rocker and me, the punk rock background, I think a lot of punk rockers would say hypocrisy is probably like the number one enemy that's at the core of a lot of bad things in life. So at that point, it was easy for me to go, I see you, you're a snake, you're a rat. I see you for what you are. This is not, real and then the other side of it too is there's a lot there's been a lot of comedians who like i come from the alt world i come from the softer world of comedy and the weirdo side of comedy and there's a lot of comics from the club side which is known as like the harder edge side you might think that that's the dividing line no i do pretty well at the clubs and a lot of the club comics, even of an ilk who you and a generation who you might think might be most offended by, by me being like this weak emo crybaby, have actually, I actually have nothing but respect for, and they've been great to me. And some one of the people from that scene of like an older generation, really rough-edged comic, was one of the only comics who kind of shut it down when, when one of these incidents happened. Went That's out dope. of his way to tell me like. Like, as soon as I heard about it, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about that dude for? He just works, puts in the time, does his thing, fuck off, you know? And it was it was someone who you would never expect to get my back, but it's because in reality, you work hard, you have something to say, you take chances, you pay your rent, God bless you. I think that's where a lot of artists and a lot of comedians, so people want to slamming me, it causes trouble. God bless you. We'll talk someday and I'll ask you, I'll ask you what the problem is because we've never met. And I'm not saying I'm going to fight anybody. It's not my style, but I also have no problem saying to someone, yeah, I think I've heard you on a podcast completely destroy me. What was that about? Why did you do that? And seeing what happens in person. I'm not, I'm not sitting here claiming I'm going to fight at at all, but I'm more than happy to be like, Hey, I've seen video of you on the internet recording a thing where you're coming at me and 
this is the first time we've spoken. So what's the deal? I will create that awkward public scenario at the very least. At the very and least. I appreciate that because I, I, I don't know. I almost feel weird that like I'm doing this whole podcast about being non-toxic and shit. And the first thing I thought of when I heard about somebody talking shit about somebody that I like is like, oh, let's fuck them up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I certainly had that instinct too. And like I said, it's, it's funny based on my material and my demeanor and who I am in 2021, I do think some of these people view me as very, very soft. And I've had to learn that I am, and that's because of choices and that's because of growth. And that's a thing to be proud of. But I grew up a pretty pissed off person. I grew up in in a time and place where it's not it's not bullshit to say I grew up it's funny I, anybody I talked to from from high school and I've been reconnecting with a lot of people since I moved back to New Jersey all, everybody's like yeah it was fucked up it was weirdly violent it was the adults were not on it we were on our own like I have that in me and there is a part of me that sits there in fantasy. Oh, I'm going to see this person in a club someday. I'm just going to fucking pop them in the grill and that's how we'll handle it. And then I have to remember that's part of the problem. You know, that's part of the problem. What is that going to do? But I don't think things are toxic when they're earned reactions, right? I think when you think about this idea of toxic masculinity, there's people who scoff at it. Well, it's very real. It's very real. Oh, hell yeah. There's a... Millions of examples we can all come up off up with off the top of our heads if we're real. But I think if someone attacks my character and my work and tries to shame me, having never even met me, I don't think it's toxic of me to say I have a right to confront that person about that. And this is not me going, I'm going to find out where he's performing tonight. I'm going to wait outside the club in a car. And I'm going to throw him up against the wall. That's when it becomes ridiculous, right? But the idea of we're in the same field, we're in the same city, probably going to meet someday. At that point, I think it's well with my rights to go, hey, man, what the fuck's the problem here? What's the fucking problem? You can say it right now if you want to. I don't know that I view that as toxic. I think that there's, there's actions and reactions, right? And it, to me, it's like when the bar is set and the scales are tilted towards something that validates aggression for the sake of it or lets people off the hook for things that they shouldn't be let off the hook off for that's toxic right but if the starting level is i did nothing to a person this person shit on you for no reason shit on me yeah and i have something to say is that toxic is no that it's not toxic you know? i sit yeah. there i struggle i don't know but i don't I think, think it is everybody has the right to defend themselves you know what i'm saying i i for me the idea and i came up, I think there's some similarities in the way that we came up. Like I got bullied a lot. And as a result of that, like I learned how to throw a fucking punch. And that may have in my teens and early twenties been my first reaction whenever somebody said something that I didn't like. But you know, I'm 45 years old now. I haven't thrown a punch in 22 years. And I that would not, while in my head that might be my first reaction, like in real life, you know what I'm saying? Like I wouldn't I wouldn't lift a fist to hit somebody, I don't think. So the confrontation part, I don't think is toxic, but leveling somebody violently would be the toxic part. Well, and it's, I mean, 
it sounds like you and I had some very similar experiences, right? Because then what happens is you get into like your early 20s, your mid 20s, and you start to see the effect you're having on people. And you go, oh, that person wasn't out to get me. And my instinct is to like push people away. Right. That's where it becomes this loop that's so dangerous, which is like, well, there's a shitty environment that's making me feel like I need to defend myself. That's justified. But because this environment is not being dealt with in a healthy way, now I feel like I need to defend myself when there's no need to. And that's making me the asshole. And that's making me the bully. And I'm saying things to people that are hurting them because in my mind, I always need to protect myself. But my starting point was so skewed. And my view of how life works is so skewed that I, I can think of some specific incidences where I go, oh, for as much as I can complain about being bullied, I go, oh, I, I said some things to people that really hurt them. Because in my mind, I'm the bullied one. But I wasn't that time. I was defending myself against nothing. That's not good. That's where so much of it needs to get unwrapped. And that's where this like, priority on toughness is, is, is so bad. And especially having a two-year-old son now, I take a step back and go, okay, what are the good parts of all that that I think have served me well? And how do I get my son to channel those and have access to those without him having to go through all the nonsense that needs to be unpacked and unwrapped? And it's probably the most confusing and hardest to answer question in my life right now. So I think about all this stuff you and I are talking about. I think about it a lot. Do I want my son to know how to fight? And you can imagine growing up how we did. I go, I don't. I well, and then I sit here. I go, I don't. I hope he never gets in a fight. And then I go, Do I really mean that? Do I really mean that? You know. And then I sit there, and I, the answer I've settled on lately is like, Yeah, he needs to know how to fight. Ideally, it won't even come into play for him. But I want him to be the type of guy where he, if he goes into a bathroom at school and some three kids are cornering some smaller kid. I want him to be able to fight on the smaller kid's behalf. So if you don't know how to fight, how do you fight for other people? I hope he has to fight for himself, but right. These are the types of questions where it's like, fuck man, what? Yeah. That's a complicated question to answer. And I think you sort of nailed it there. I don't know. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't have kids. I don't know that the whole culture of bullying is the same as it was when you and I were younger Uh, because now there's the whole internet and people hiding behind a screen and I don't know that people throw punches the way that you know there's no I don't think there's a lot of schoolyard fights the way that there were when you and I were were kids nevertheless I, I do think it's important to be able to defend yourself or be able to defend someone if the situation comes up but also to have the nuance in there of look never throw the first punch yeah, it's right that I mean you just brought up another great fear which is like I have a feeling now that if like my son got you know like I remember once there there was a kid who was ca- kind of making a point of telling me he was going to beat me up and he was trying to show off to some other kids and I knew I have to have this fight quickly. I have to get, the, I really, I, I feel like you're indicating you probably learned the same thing, which is like, <laughs> this can Just, be, 
this can be two bad days or this can be three bad weeks. It's going to end the same way, clearly. Yeah, let's just get it over with. So I start throwing punches. I go, I'm going to lose this fight. And then his buddy, the, to be fair, what happened, what often happens is, I'll never, this was in eighth grade, I think. That kid got so, he was not from a tough part of town. And he was pretty surprised that even though he was bigger than me, he didn't realize maybe that I was from, a, I had, I, I got in fights. I didn't win many fights, but I got in some. And he backed off. And then his buddy, who was a genuinely tough guy, who was much bigger, leveled me. I remember that. And I didn't even go to the teachers about it because I just felt like they don't give a shit. And I've seen right. it a million times. Like, I don't trust the adults to give a shit. This kid's not going to get in trouble. My brother once got broken, once had a bone broken in a fight. And the school told him, we're not going to do anything about it because that kid's father drinks and he'll beat him up and my mom's going and that sucks but there's no consequence so i'm growing up in a world there's no consequence i have a feeling my son isn't growing up in a world where like if someone puts him on his ass in a school hallway he won't tell someone i i think i get the sense the world has changed where that would be dealt with yes and i, I didn't think it was but I don't know what the fuck TikTok is. What is that? <laughs> He's got to deal with that. I don't know what that is. What's TikTok? Join the club. Is he going to look like an asshole on TikTok and everybody's <laughs> going to be making fun of him? Fun of him. And not just like the 30 kids in his lunch period? Like <laughs> 100,000 kids across the world. Yeah. All of Reddit? Is, all, <laughs> is my son just going to be bullied by the front page of Reddit? Like, how does that? I don't know how to deal with that. I didn't grow up with that. Oh, shit. Yeah, different times, different things. How has, you're a parent for the first time, you've got a two-year-old, you just, congratulations, turned 40. Thanks. How have those things kind of come in right behind one another changed you? Like, did you, particularly with your birthday, were you like, oh, this is a big fucking deal. I got a, uh, 40 is a big number. Or were you just like, hey, it's a birthday, whatever. It was 30, I was like, oh, it's a big deal. And then it wound up being just a number. And then 40, I was like, yeah, I've learned my lesson. It's just a number. And it actually did put me deeply in my head. I mean, I did. I had my son when I was 39. I bought a house in the suburbs. The pandemic hit. So those things all add up. So who knows how much of it is like midlife crisis driven by factor A, B, C, or D. That also the stuff I mentioned too about some of the people saying me happened right in that same like 18 months. So it's like, mm. oh, okay, who am I? What's my stand in the world? So yeah, I definitely have had some midlife crisis stuff. I've thought about like quitting comedy and there's like a farm that's not a far drive in my house. I'm like, maybe I should go see if they need help at the farm. I don't know anything about farming. Then I talked to my buddy who's a couple years older than me, one of my best friends. He's like, yeah, I remember there was a stretch where I wanted to quit and become a farmer too. I think that's a pretty common midlife crisis thing. And yeah, it's, it was very real for me. It was very real. And like, not all, like, I remember Snapchat was the one where I was like, I officially don't get it. Yeah, I don't understand it. I was like, Tumblr, I did great on. Right. And like Twitter, I did some really cool, if you Google, like, I did some stuff back in the day that the early days of Twitter, people pointed to some things I did as like, oh, this is the potential of this platform. Great. Like even Instagram. Cool. I, I see what this is for. Snapchat. 
was the first one where I was like, oh no, I'm old. And then I stopped <laughs> understanding the rest of it. And now I need like help with Facebook stuff. Like I'll be doing shows and my agents will be like, can you accept the hosting request from the venue? And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure three years ago, I knew what it meant. I'm actually old enough now that I'm forgetting technology. I used to know this is fucking real. So I try to take a deep breath and go write all this, write all these thoughts down and turn them into something creative. And that'll be your way of, that's the, that's the adult version of throw a punch at the bully that's fucking with you. Right. But yeah, I can't, I can't pretend that it hasn't been weird. You know, I, I, I do also think that returned 40 in 2020 and I have to imagine turning 40 and having a kid during a year when life is frozen and all you can do is sit around and think it's probably, that's probably how you almost sign up to be a farmer. Um, <laughs> Cause everything is fucking crumbling or, or not crumbling. Uh, you had some good changes, but everything is different, like decidedly different. Yeah. And like all the validation and dopamine I get comes from live performance. You know, I, I do many types of things, but part of why I've always stayed in New York is because it has the most, and I'm in Jersey now, but in at, why I've remained in New York, which probably would have been the smarter, more stable choice many years ago. I'm like, you just had the most opportunities to get on stage. Like New York, you can go up on stage as much as you want any night of the week. And I go, and that's validation. That's connection with an audience. That's like eye contact that's say some risky shit that makes you feel like a real outcast. And then when people actually laugh and react, well, you go, okay, like I'm explaining it. Well, they get it. They understand I'm not alone. There's the ego boost, you know, like I'm sure if the, you know, finding out about some of my peers having some things to say, if I had been able to go on stage and do what I do, it would not have rattled me as hard as it did. Feeling like a cheesy she, all of a sudden I'm like oh my god like I did it I'm in the suburbs I'm like a cheesy white <laughs> suburban dad guy if I was still driving into the city a few nights a week and getting laughs probably wouldn't have hurt as much so the pandemic was definitely gasoline on what I'm sure would have been an existing thing but not a good year to turn 40 there's much bigger people with much more horror stories related to the pandemic I'm respectful of that but sure as far as somebody who's already going to probably be having a midlife crisis, not the year to have your midlife crisis. <laughs> so in the midst of that, I guess you were creating Hack My Life. Yeah. So you at least had like a creative, well, in addition to Beautiful Anonymous and, and you know, the other stuff that you do online, like you were still hustling, like you were pretty busy. What does it feel like now that Half My Life is out and people are talking about it and you've created this document of you know a particular time in your life when you're kind of adjusting to at least the kid part of it but you're also kind of doing this quick shot travel around part of the country doing shows and you realizing that you spent you know 50 percent of your existence in this job this like weird itinerant carny worker <laughs> life it you know i self-funded it and then comedy dynamics was super cool and got on board and was like we'll make sure you know basically i was able to self-fund it and then kind comedy dynamics was like we see what you're going for and we like it and they were able to make it so i didn't like lose too much money having self-funded this stupid thing and 
there's even a point where this production company stepped in and, and talked to me about it. And they were like, we want to fund it and it'll make it so much easier. And, but they were like, but we want to put a director in it and take control of this and that. And I, my, every instinct I had was like, I got to go back to the roots and do this one my way. This has to be a DIY thing. And it, I might lose money on it and it might not turn out as quote unquote good as it could. And even when people watch it, you can tell like, oh, they didn't have the same sound guy at all these shows because there's some, some of the sound sounds, yeah, there's some stuff that's really rough around the edges. I hope that's charming and I hope it reads genuine, but more importantly, especially in the course of editing it and watching the cuts the editor would send and thinking about what it was, I realized like, oh, there was a stretch where my life, there's a stretch where my life was very much the artist's life not many responsibilities, a lot of chances to get out there and experiment and go for things and be willing to fall on my face without much consequence. It's not as true now. I have a kid, I have a mortgage. My work, I used to do this public access TV show that was regarded as this like super hip thing. There'd be all these articles about it being like this sort of subversive like game changer. And I read this stuff and go, man, this is just me and my friends making this weird thing. But people are actually saying that it has some value. And then like all these bands wanted to play it and like it started with local bands. And then it would be like, we'd be getting like, like A&R people reaching out like, Hey, can we have this band on? And we'd be going, this band is like, what are we talking about? Like it was cool. <laughs> and now, now I'm not that, you know, and it's, it's been very interesting to figure out what that means. And, and half my life I've realized in a way that is really beautiful I feel like all the things you mentioned about it swirl together and I think so much of it and my instinct to keep it under my control was like there's a lot of things that from my past that I need to let go and there's a lot of parts about my present that I need to get comfortable with and there's a lot of things about my future that I need to learn to embrace here and I think half my life is that I think it's like I think it's I think it's me going I'm not as mentally unmoored as I was a bunch of years ago I'm not as much of a loose cannon as I was five six seven years ago I'm not as much of a troublemaker as I was I'm not as cool as I was and all those things that are just true and then half my life is kind of me going, so who am I now? Moving forward, who am I now? And it's been, it's something where I go, I don't know how many people are watching it. I hope a lot of people are finding it. I hope nobody loses money on taking a chance on me. That's always a major concern, major right. concern, major source of anxiety. Thank you again to Comedy Dynamics. <laughs> but I sit here and I go creatively. It's one of the things I'm most proud of because it's, it's really raw and really honest. And I, I didn't even necessarily understand why my gut was telling me really keep this one small and under your control because I, I realized, oh, there's a lot of things I had to put a pin in to figure out what's left moving forward. And then the really happy thing is to go, okay, so I'm like a cheesy dad who has a lot of jokes about lawn care right now. And you know what? There's some of the best jokes I've ever written and that's okay. And I think half my life, ultimately, the subtext is a, a, a lot about putting that to bed, right? Of like, it's okay to not be cool anymore. And if you, I did pretty well, I'm not going to lie, like 
had some success. Yeah. But I still rent my own car in Buffalo and drive to Detroit. <laughs> like I'm not, right. you know, someone who I have my Amy Schumer's. I got the private jet. You always hear listeners. I never got the private jet. Right. I never got the tour bus. I don't got a driver. I've never had that. And I think the days when that was a possibility are past. But I still love it. It turns out I still love it, and it's different, and it's coming from a different place in my psyche. But I still love it, and that that was I think half my life needed to happen and be sort of captured and packaged the way it is so i could figure that out and a nice thing is i think it is i think that part of it being kind of gritty is that i think people do start to sense that is happening genuinely as they watch it of like oh this guy's performing at a punk club but his jokes now are about giving birth to his son that's it's weird i see the weird fit but it, as is shown in the special and one thing I, I learned over and over again in my life is just you get in a room with a whole bunch of people and you put on a show and if you're really open to the idea that anything can happen then like a lot of times you walk away really surprised and feeling really awake and that's true for you and the audience and that that hasn't changed i think it's important as a consumer of art and i can only speak for myself here the musicians that i like the comedians I like are the writers I like are all people who allow themselves the space to evolve and aren't trying to go back to the well just because it's like there was this one time when I was 29 and I was really fucking cool and I'm just going to keep doing that over and over and over again. They're like, well, you know, they do the Prince thing. They're like, well, if this, if I lose some fans because of this, okay, but you know, this is where I am at in my life right now. I'm also excited for the potential that that realization gives me about I've thought a lot during the pandemic about ethics as a performer. I fired my agents because I didn't necessarily love the way that they operated. And with my new agency, I've said, if I can do a show that's all ages instead of 21 plus, let's do that. And if I lose a couple bucks, let's do that. I really said to them, I want ticket prices to be $20 or less. And then in the modern world, I've learned these venues tr get charged fees. They have to charge fees. So it'll come out, but I'll have somebody go, oh, the venue thinks you can charge 35 bucks that like they're getting feedback through their, you know, your name comes up as someone who gets requested at their club. They think you could get 35 bucks. I go, I don't want it. I don't want 35 bucks. And they go, but it's more money. And I go, and I feel bad that's costing you money, but I go, I don't think a college kid has 35 bucks. I don't know that somebody who works part-time has 35 bucks. I don't know participating in the gig economy right now has 35, let alone they want to bring a date and they want to get a drink and some food. Yep. I don't, I don't only want to perform for people who have 90 disposable dollars right now. I'm lucky enough that I don't need to squeeze every penny out of them and I don't want to be exploited. So I think about like the ethics of the places I perform, the types of things I want to do, the amount of money I want to charge. That's all been stuff that's been able to be thought about in the pandemic and in the process of putting together the new special. And I've also always tried to be very community driven and I've tried to bring people up with me and I've tried to make sure that like the people who are like-minded as artists, I've also had to come to a sad but true realization. And I've had to realize that this is not a bad thing. It's just life is that I got to take care of myself as much or more than I take care of other people. And that's another realization I've had in the pandemic 
So you're talking about like people need to be honest and people need to evolve and people need to be true to themselves and have those second acts, those thirds acts in their career. And I, I go, well, I've learned that sometimes people just want to talk shit. Even if your impulse is to try to be a good person and a community person, people, some people are going to talk shit. And when that happens, I'm not going to lie, it did hurt my feelings that some of the people who I felt close with didn't even ask me how I was doing. And they don't owe me anything, but it would have been nice. Right. I go, okay. That's another thing I have to learn. Protect yourself. And then I sit here and I go, oh, this next act, the second act, third act, whichever one it is for me, I go, what's it going to look like for me when I'm a little bit, now that I've learned that it's not necessarily, that being selfish is not inherently wrong if it's done in an ethical way. That's another thing I've learned that's very interesting to me to go, oh, maybe I can just not worry about other people, taking care of other people. Maybe I can just write the funniest shit I can write and go out there and do it and be a little cutthroat and not care about anything except that and see what happens. And that's an interesting logistical thought too. That's like an interesting, like, like I said, like infrastructural thing that I want to see how that goes. So if like, I'm just learning that now at the age of 41, I'm like, oh, my version of selfish is not that selfish. What happens if I get selfish? Let's go see. I've never been selfish in my career. Maybe it's helped me back. Let's go see. I had a discussion with the, on a previous uh, podcast with a, a psychiatrist, and part a big part of our discussion was the realization that selfishness is not an inherently bad thing. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I mean, my attitude is kind of like, if you don't take care of yourself, no one else is going to take care of you. So you've got to look out for yourself, maybe not necessarily to the total exclusion of other people, but you got to do it. My shrink recently phrased it in a way that got through to me in a big way because I was saying, I feel like maybe I've slipped on the coolness factor and now some people are taking pot shots and I don't think they would have when I was somebody who was like hiring writing staffs and this and that. And she just goes, I've been trying to get through to you for years on this. She's like, you like taking care of people and that's great. But she's like, you got to realize and she was quoting, I think she said she was quoting Eric Fromm, I believe, from The Art of Loving. And she said, every relationship on earth that is not mother and child is transactional. That's the only one. That's the only one that it's like, you're in my belly and you're popping out of my belly. And that's, that is what it is. Like, that's, we have, that's our relationship. Everything else, everything else, there's a transaction happening. And in its healthiest way, it's like, I want to give you friendship in exchange to get friendship. Sure. But she's like, you tangle up your social relationships with your work relationships. You expect these people who are your friends to get your back. They don't see you as someone who needs your back to be got, or maybe they just forgot, or maybe they just don't care. But it's that's the transaction exposing itself. That you're mixing business with friendship. If all your friends are comedians and you want your comedians to get your back, that's that's their job, man. That's their business. It's the transaction at play. And you have refused to see that these are transactional things. So that's why I sit here now. I'm moving forward. I'm going, what's the transaction? Oh, you want to do X with me? You get this out of it. I get this out of it. You want me to perform at this place? Why do you want me? Okay. You give me a stage and this is the value I bring to your venue. 
you want me to appear in your web series? Okay, here's what you get out of that. Here's what I get out of that. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong in thinking that way because I can guarantee you I've been burned enough by it now where I go, I'm, I, I generally am not a person who initiates things with that mindset. So all I'm doing is trying to train myself to safety check everything to get there. And it's by asking myself, what do I get out of it? And I've only now started to realize how that is a much more necessary question to ask than I've realized in my younger days. You just sort of blew my mind a little bit with that. That's uh... Well, it's all because of my shrink barb, who's, <laughs> I believe, stealing it from Eric from. So your, your shrink is pretty awesome. A crazy person in their own right. <laughs> oh, but the best ones are. The best ones her. are. So being conscious of time, I want to ask you one more question. Sure. As a parent and as a, the, the parent of, of, a, of a boy, what is one thing that you want to tell your kid that you did not have the benefit of being told when you were growing up? And I ask this to, I try to ask this of every guest that I have who is a new parent, relatively new parent. I will tell you this is a, the answer comes to me immediately. It's simple answer. It's going to sound harsh. Let's go. I'm ready for harsh. My father and I have never in 41 years said the words, I love you to each other. We haven't. And in fact, have talked about how we do not say that to each other. Oh, that's very meta. Yeah. Well, I once did a show and my dad was on the show. This was back 2007, 2008. It was a show at a theater in New York. And the bit was that people could submit questions, write a, write a question on an index card for my dad. I won't vet them first. I'll pull it and just ask. And pe things came up. I'm asking my dad questions about our relationship. It's pretty intense. I give him credit for doing it. And one of the cards came up and mine is simple. I would just love to see you guys say the words I love you to each other on stage in front of all of us. And my dad reads it out loud and he goes, yeah, no, we don't do that. And the whole crowd went, <gasps> And I was like, yeah, no, we've never said that to each other. And my dad, and then the crowd just got super fascinated because it was weird. Mm -hmm. And my dad's like, I just don't think that's really like how we operate with each other. And I was like, yeah, I think it, and I've worked on a standup. There's a, I was working on a standup bit for a while about it where I was like, my dad's never told me he loves me. We've laughed about it. It doesn't affect me that much. And then I would say, Honestly, anytime I see like a father and son say the words I love you to each other, I kind of assume I could beat up both the father and the son. Like I was working on that joke and then I was like, I think that's fucked up. There might be something there, but, but maybe that I, I don't know how much I mean that one, but I've sat and thought long and hard and tried to figure out why that is the case. I know my father loves me. He knows I love him. We both know that the other knows that. I don't know why it's something he's chosen to never say. I feel like he set the bar on that. I'll be full disclosure too. My mom did not say that to me until I first said it to her in my 20s. I think we just came from a family that was not built with that in mind right. as far as being a thing to verbally express. But I tell my son every day, multiple times a day, it's he he's going to grow up where that's going to be as common as past the salt or, you know, whatever, like... So I just, I just figured whatever it is that 
causes that between me and my dad, I'm going to slice through it on day one. I told him I loved him the first time I held him. And I mean, I knew I had to do that. I knew I had to do that because I said, I got to start this quickly. So I don't overthink this. And every dad's home, every dad's home. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why all these years, my dad and I have been unable to say that to each other, but it's, it remains. It's like, I, you know, my first impulse is kind of offer up theories. And I mean, the truth is, I don't know. I mean, I have the same relationship with my parents, although I think my relationship with my parents is much more complicated than the relationship (laughs) you have with your parents, but it might be just like a generational thing. I have no idea. My father will FaceTime with my son. My father will tell my son, he, my dad will say, I love you, Cal. Say it right to my son. I'll be on the line and then I'll go, cool, bye, dad. Like it's, <laughs> it's really just dangling out there. I'll say I love you to my mom at the end of phone calls, but if it's a speaker phone call with the both of them, I just say I'll talk to you guys soon. And I have no ill will towards my dad and I am aware that he loves me. Actions speak louder than words. words. Amen to that. Those are certainly some words that are pretty impactful, and we just have not gone there. So, you want to talk about toxic masculinity, right? Like it's his generation that really synthesized that and set the bar. So, I don't know what he would say about his dad, but if he hears this, he knows I love him. He knows I do. <laughs> He'll never bring it up to me that he heard this. But yeah, it's definitely a little, it's pronounced, especially, especially having a son now. And this is not meant to be judgmental of my dad, but it's like my instinct is to, like my biological instinct is to express that all the time. So that's, I don't know what was the nature nurture, but that's the thing you have to stifle. You Mm. know, that's the thing you have to opt out of saying to a kid. So that's weird. That's an interesting one. That is an interesting one. I, I, I'm, I'm going to leave that there. Is the love thing generational? It's hard to say. I didn't grow up with a father, but I don't remember my mother telling me that she loved me. I don't remember my grandfather or any of my older male relatives telling me that either. I wonder what makes it so difficult for people of a certain age. I mean, if you do love someone, I feel like that's something you should share on a regular basis, and I make a point of saying or writing or texting the people I love whenever possible, to the point where it can probably sometimes be annoying. While it sounds like Chris and his dad enjoy a close relationship and you can totally have one without saying you love someone, after all, love is best shown via actions and not words, I wonder, I hope, that they'll eventually be able to have that exchange with one another. You can find Chris on Twitter at ChrisGethard and on IG at ChrisGeth. New episodes of Beautiful Anonymous are available every week on your favorite podcast platform, and you can watch Half My Life or stream the soundtrack on just about any DSP that offers up music or movies. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, and also, go to chrisgeth.com to find out when he's going to be appearing in a city near you. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, Twitter, TizMikeJoseph, or you can email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Always willing to hear constructive criticism, thoughts, ideas, realizations and if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest i will take recommendations from now until the end of time so please feel free to reach out to me i want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show 
Uh, Calvin Williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. Jacob Block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.